Let's start with the premise that increased representation is a win. We're seeing a push for minority representation all over government. It's at the highest levels. Kamala Harris, she's vice president of the United States. Alaska, they just sent their first Native woman to Congress, Mary Paltola. She defeated Sarah Palin. Woohoo! And, of course, you know, we have Clarence Thomas, and now we have Kentaji Brown-Jackson, and they're sitting on the Supreme Court. So at high levels of government, we have have more and more representation. But is representation enough? They're certainly challenging that in Georgia. Okay, they are banking on the fact that Georgia voters, specifically GOP voters, are going to come out and vote for Herschel Walker, a black man running against Senator Raphael Warnock, another black man. Because, hey, I mean, they're two black men, right? There's no differences. That's definitely what the strategists for the GOP and their power brokers, that's what they're betting on. They're absolutely betting that voters are going to, you know, trust a minority candidates, going to wield power in a way that's going to fight for the best interests of that minority. But Herschel Walker doesn't offer black Georgians anything more than symbolic representation. And if he is selected, it's not going to it's not because he's going to do the job of representing the public. His role is to perpetuate the status quo, which is keeping the rich rich and the powerful in power. We're going to look at Clarence Thomas, Kamala Harris and uh, the now imminent appointment of Robert Fogg as head of the Monroe County Defender's Office. We're going to look at those people more closely. Because this episode is about the costs of a representation-first politics and the uncomfortable reality that increased representation of minority people in powerful positions has not improved and in many instances has actually made worse the real-life circumstances of women, the poor, and people of color. I'm your host, Attorney Mary Whiteside. This episode, you may hear some of my two-year-old's reactions. I left them in because they really capture the mood. And you are listening to May It Displease the Court. Okay, there is a difference between minority leaders who rise to prominence and fame because of their dedication and hard work, and minority leaders who've been selected and installed by rich and powerful people to serve their interests. I mean, let's be real. The rich and powerful are obsessed with getting richer and more powerful, and they don't like to share. They certainly don't want to pay fair wages or benefits, and they're not looking to give up any seats at the table of power. They also know that they can use their money to influence politicians. And they've also recently figured out that they can use their money to flood the judicial arena. Now, they've known for years, decades, centuries maybe, that the most effective way to keep a society protecting the already rich and powerful is by passing laws that are friendly to business owners, friendly to the wealthy, by uh, getting some politicians in their pockets, by giving 
contributions and favors, and also by cultivating a bench of friendly judges who will rule in their favor. All right, so the next step is to sell the idea that the laws and policies and judicial decisions that actually benefit the rich and powerful are somehow a positive to regular people. When, you know, the reality is that the system is harming pretty much every average person and it's really hammering the poor and the minorities. So who better to do some crafty spin to make the bad news seem good than a racial or minority spokesperson? Now, who is this racial or minority spokesperson? What is that kind of a person? Well, for example, it's when a black person is hired by a conservative power broker and they diagnose and attribute individual behaviors by an individual black person, Asian person, gay person, to all people of that category. And this strategy works because it suggests that if, say, a black conservative makes a negative statement about black culture, which reinforces black stereotypes, well, then it must be true. And this gives white people permission to say the same thing because, well, I mean, a black person said it, right? A racial spokesperson or minority spokesperson can also make the case that there's absolutely no reason for anything to be done now to make up for wrong things that were done in the past. A great example of a racial spokesperson is Candace Owens from The Daily Wire. She's a black woman. And there was this pushback after the queen died of negative feelings being expressed by victims of British colonization. We're talking people, even people that were personally or they had relatives that were killed in the genocides around the world stemming from British colonization. And Owens defended British colonization of Africa, saying it was, quote, a net positive for Africa. What the heck, mommy? Now here, here's another example. Trans spokesperson Caitlyn Jenner, who was, you know, a former Olympian Bruce Jenner, married to Chris Kardashian and then transitioned to Caitlyn Jenner. Caitlyn ran for governor of California, and she is arguably the the most famous trans woman in America. She's a Republican, and she supported the Republican bills that are sweeping the nation to ban trans athletes from competing in school sports. And she said it, quote, just isn't fair. And we just have to protect girls in our schools. So she gives, or she gives you know, straight white people, or straight people, really, whoever, uh, she gives them an excuse to say, well, you know, yeah, it's just not fair. Look, Caitlyn Jenner saying it's not fair. Right. Right, Mommy. Those are a couple great examples of racial or minority spokespersons. But, you know, as apologists go, can you really name a more effective racial spokesperson for the right-wing ideas than Clarence Thomas? I mean, he has been at it, been at it since the 90s. He is undeniably the Supreme Court's most extreme conservative. His views are so radical. He has spent uh, most of his time on the bench writing these radical, screed-like dissenting opinions because there weren't enough other justices to join him so that he could actually have a majority opinion. He is the right-wing's poster child in arguing that affirmative action is unconstitutional. 
I mean, he's very extreme in that. He said in one of his dissenting opinions that affirmative action is the same as slavery and segregation. Like, really? Slavery? Are you kidding me? I mean, this guy doesn't even believe in child labor laws. He is pro-children working. You know, but in 1971, he was the beneficiary of an affirmative action program, got him into Yale Law School as one of only 12 black students. And this affirmative action program guaranteed that 10% of Yale's incoming class would be a student of color. But Thomas, while he benefited, he is perfectly happy and gleeful, actually, if he gets to write the opinion striking down affirmative action when it comes before the court this term. I think it's pretty likely that it's going to be overturned now that the Supreme Court is packed with Federalist Society judges that were installed by former President Trump, the same guy who tried to overthrow the government. And he had an assist from Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny Thomas. She was out there promoting his ideas, big lie that Joe Biden didn't win the election and they should just keep Trump in office. She was right there. And we're really supposed to believe that Clarence had no idea what was going on. Give me a break. All right. Enough about Clarence Thomas. You know, he's not the only one. Let's look at another racial spokesperson. We've got the Georgia Senate candidate for the GOP, Herschel Walker, former Heisman Trophy winner, former University of Georgia running back, football star. Of course, he's been living in Texas for the past decade. But anyway, he's running for Georgia. And the GOP is totally convinced that Republican voters are just going to vote for whoever has an R next to their name. And also enough black people in Georgia are going to vote for a black man who has name recognition that they, you know, they they put up a candidate who is basically incoherent. His positions on gun violence and uh, climate concerns were described by journalists as incoherent word salad, a blithering, incoherent mess, and he's described as one of the saddest Senate candidates ever. When he criticized the Green New Deal, he told his supporters that it The Green New Deal is a total ripoff because America has some of the cleanest air in the world. But since we don't control the air, our good air decided to float over China's bad air. So when China gets our good air and their air got to move, so it moves over to our good airspace. What? What the heck? I'm like genuinely concerned that he has CTE. I think he has brain damage from his years playing football And I think he's being manipulated to run for office so that he can be controlled by the people who put him there. They're not letting him debate Senator Warnock because the guy can't even put a sentence together. He is quintessentially symbolic representation. And we need to know how can we recognize symbolic representation and reject it. Well, we need to investigate Who's running? This is, this is just good advice all the time. Know who you're voting for. Look at their background, their experience. What do they think? Who do they associate with? Who is, and who is promoting and funding them? And what are their motives? What are the funders' motives? And we're going to have to rely on the, the free press to find a lot of this information out. But then it's up to us to digest that information and to pass it along to our circles of influence. I mean, you really didn't have to do much research. The Senate didn't need to do much to reject Clarence Thomas for his lack of character, and then he wouldn't be on the Supreme Court. They had everything they needed 
right there in the sexual abuse allegations levied by Anita Hill back in 1991. So if the senators then believed or even seriously investigated a credible sexual abuse allegation, then he wouldn't have a lifetime appointment on the nation's highest court. He also wouldn't have paved the way for Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, Thomas, he made it through with a sexual abuse allegation, so Brett Kavanaugh, he sailed through too. And now, now we got these guys with lifetime appointments with power over every uterus in America. Georgia voters, you have enough information to reject Herschel Walker for his lack of character and lack of ability. Go to YouTube. Search him. I challenge you to find a clip where he's actually making sense on any topic. He's also been exposed as a liar. He lied about being an FBI agent. He's not. He lied about how many children he has. He was, you know, going on railing against absentee fathers, who suck, by the way. Uh, he only he claimed he had one child. Well, reporters found out, oh, actually, he has four children. He just is absentee for three of them. He claimed to be his college valedictorian, but turns out he didn't even graduate, just started playing football. And then he claimed to own all these businesses he's never owned. So... He's a liar. And then, if that's not enough, there are the sworn allegations by his wife that he held a loaded gun to her head and threatened to blow her brains out. So, really, he is completely unqualified for any office of any kind. Now, you contrast that with the actual representation that Senator Warnock has given Georgia. He is, so who is he, right? He's a black pastor. Frankly, pastor is not enough for me. I need to know what kind of pastor. Are you a righteous gemstone, Joel Osteen, enrich yourself with the gospel kind of pastor? Or are you a pastor that walks the walk? So when I look at Warnock's policies, I see that he wrote a bill to limit the price of insulin to 35 bucks. That benefits people. That is not something that the that big pharma is going to be happy about. That's evidence to me that he's walking the walk. He is pro-choice and believes that abortion is a decision between the woman and her medical provider. Another check in his favor. And he voted for bills that are helping Georgians like the Inflation Reduction Act that's bringing the Infrastructure Act that are bringing money and jobs to Georgia. That is not symbolic representation. That's somebody really working for his constituents. So I'm really hoping that, Georgia, you send Warnock back to the Senate and also that you elect Stacey Abrams for governor. You have some great choices out there. Please choose them. Now, I, I, don't, want you, I don't want you liberals out there thinking that, ooh, you know, it's just them. It's just the GOP. They're the only ones putting forward symbolic representation. OK, that's not this isn't something that only conservatives do. And. As evidence of that, I want to offer you Kamala Harris. She's a Democrat, former California senator, and our first female and person of color ever as vice president. So at first glance, right, I'm excited. Female, person of color, smart, well-spoken, career as a public servant. I'm like, check, 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 check. But looking a little deeper, Harris rose to prominence as a prosecutor. Now that's going to give me pause because I'm a defense attorney. I know DAs and I know what kind of DAs rise in politics. 
And for the past 20 years, at least, if not more, they've been tough on crime DAs. These people, they, you know, they may think that they're doing God's work protecting the public from bad guys. But I'm going to tell you the truth. DAs, as a group, benefit professionally from sending huge numbers of poor people and people of color to the extremely profitable system of mass incarceration. And they also aid in covering up unconstitutional police work and police brutality. But that's just in general. Okay, so what, what's Harris's individual record? Now, you got to remember that Harris was a DA and then she became California's attorney general. She calls herself a progressive prosecutor. But civil rights attorney Alec Karakatsanis looked at Harris's record in his book, Usual Cruelty, The Complicity of Lawyers in the Criminal Injustice System. And he looked at Harris's behavior as a prosecutor, and I got to tell you, it sure doesn't look progressive. Here are a few highlights. She pressured local prosecutors to take weak cases, meaning that they didn't have very strong evidence, all the way to trial to look tough on crime before her election. Now, prosecutors have a duty to seek justice, which means that they should not. They have prosecutorial discretion. They can choose not to prosecute cases that have weak evidence. Harris tried to block the early release of people that had less serious crimes. There was this really dangerous prison overcrowding, and so they wanted to release the less dangerous criminals. And she opposed this early release because, quote, the prison would lose an important labor pool. Now, she's referring to this practice in California of having prisoners fight dangerous wildfires for $1.45 a day. I mean, this is a great example of exploiting prison labor to help create billions in budgetary surplus in California year after year. Oh, and another gross little detail about using prisoners to fight wildfires is that when they're released and are looking for a job to, you know, maybe not turn back to crime, they can't get a job as firefighters because of their criminal records. There's no, like, waiver for people that have experience. Well, you know, while that's really gross, it's this next one that that really gets me. Harris fought against exonerations of wrongful convictions and worked to conceal evidence of false testimony and prosecutorial misconduct. Mm. Now, I genuinely think that some prosecutors drink enough of their own Kool-Aid that they believe that every single person that they prosecute is actually guilty. But that cannot be Harris. She's not acting to protect justice by ensuring that there's only strong evidence of guilt. Her actions were to protect the system of convictions, even wrongful convictions, concealing false evidence and protecting prosecutors who screwed up or acted in bad faith. Those are the actions of a person who places her own reputation above justice and absolutely over the lives of poor people. The vast majority of those people are black and brown men. So she rose professionally, in part because she fills a role that this system needs. Racist scaremongering is it's fundamental to justifying the enormous amount of money spent on police and prisons. The prison industry is so profitable. It takes public money and it uses it to control and cage millions of people. They're largely poor people and largely people of color. That's important because these are people who 
have almost no voice in the political process. They have almost no political power. And that's also because you can lose your right to vote permanently when you're convicted of a felony, right? That's why they're the most vulnerable population. So you have this highly profitable prison industry. It needs a constant flow of bodies. So it can argue for bigger and bigger shares of budgets from politicians at every single level of government. And they've been super successful. Absolutely no evidence that they are decreasing and make crime and making our lives safer. But, but man, their budgets are gigantic. So prosecutors like Harris, they play a huge role in that system. And she makes the system look less racist because she's a person of color. Meanwhile, she's rising to power on the backs of poor black and brown men. But then when she wants to run for president, she claims, oh, I was progressive. As with all things political... There's a balancing test. You know, she's leagues better than Pence, absolutely across the board, better than Pence, even with her faults. But am I happy that a person of color and a female is vice president? Yes. Unequivocally happy about that. But in terms of who that woman of color is, I'm not looking for an unrepentant ex-prosecutor because I know that that label comes with serious character defects. And believe it or not, there are actually other qualified female women of color who could have been put up for vice president. So it's not like she was the only choice. You know, those are some big national examples. I want to look at an example of symbolic representation on a much smaller scale because it may f- you may feel kind of powerless as a voter or as a citizen when you're talking about national politics. How can I affect that? But this type of Political behavior exists all up and down, and we have the most power as a citizen right in our local communities. So I am talking about Robert Fogg, who is poised to become the next Monroe County public defender. Of course, that's a little bit complicated, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you an update um, on that later in the episode. I, first, I want to catch up anybody who you know, missed my deep dive last episode into the shady politics of this controversial appointment. Just a little bit of geographic background. Monroe County Public Defender's Office is located in Rochester, New York, and that's in the western part of the states, right below Lake Ontario. To give you like a size of the community, uh, Monroe County's got about a million people, and Rochester has around 200,000. It's a mid-sized city. Very politically mixed. The suburbs and the rural sections are, you know, more heavily Republican and the city's heavily Democrat. I mean, you know, it's pretty typical, right? So the former public defender, Tim Donaher, he announced in late 2021 that he's, he decided he wasn't going to seek another two-year appointment. And he left a 35-year veteran of the office, first assistant Jill Paperno, as the interim public defender to run the office until the legislature appointed a public defender. And Tim gave the Monroe County legislature a glowing letter of recommendation for Jill, recommending she be appointed the next and first female public defender. So the law governing the appointment of the public defender gives the county legislature the power to make the appointment, but it doesn't specify the process for selecting who the legislature votes on. And that process has been determined by the president of the legislature. That person is Sabrina Lamar, 
she's a black female, a Democrat, but she caucuses with, with the Republicans, meaning that she li- aligns her votes with Republicans, not Democrats. Lamar created a process which, in hindsight, seems to have been designed to advance her chosen candidate for a full vote in the legislature. I heard rumors that Jill, even though she was recommended and she has ideal qualifications and experience, that she would never be nominated because somebody on the legislature didn't like her. And I I honestly didn't think that that was possible. I could see that maybe against other highly qualified candidates that somebody else could be chosen. That, That wasn't beyond, you know, the realm of possibility to me. But the process did not unfold the way I thought it would. I mean, lo and behold, Lamar's selection process did not allow Jill to get a vote. So, you know, that that rumor proved to be correct. Her process included an ostensibly independent nomination committee that's going to, you know, review the candidates' submission materials and also interview them. Lamar selects five out of the seven members. Then the committee votes by secret ballot, which is delivered to her. So it isn't clear that even the committee members know what each other voted. I don't think they did. Theoretically, Lamar could just say whatever she wants. What was reported is that the committee votes not to even give Jill a second interview. That is an obvious slight that couldn't have been based on merit, given her credentials, and also comparing her credentials to the credentials of the people that did move on. Now, eventually, the committee narrowed the candidates down to... Assistant Public Defender Julie Sianca and Robert Fogg, who is this private attorney, and he doesn't even live or practice in Monroe County. Nobody even knows him. Now, if you look at the qualifications of the finalists, Julie Sianca is exceptionally qualified. She's a 29-year veteran of the PD's office. She's a criminal defense expert, an extremely successful trial attorney. She's supervised nearly every department in the office, and her appointment would be historic. There's just absolutely no reason not to promote from within the office. Fogg, however, is not only less qualified than Julie, I, I don't think he's even qualified to be the next PD. He isn't from Monroe County, so he's not familiar with any of the courts, the judges, the police department. He's not familiar with the local policies and procedures, the way things work. That's what's really important about local council is that they understand how things work in that locality. He's a solo practitioner also. He, has, he doesn't have experience running or supervising other attorneys, let alone some type of like a large office with multiple departments. And his work as a general practitioner makes him not a criminal defense expert because he's been spending time doing personal injury cases, immigration cases, family law, some criminal. He certainly is not somebody who's devoted his career to indigent criminal defense. Yet Lamar chose Fogg over Sianca. And you're like, well, how is this possible when she beats him in every category? Lamar chose Fogg because he's black and Julie is white. Now you might think, well, that's a pretty bold statement. Well, it is. But she basically admitted it at a press conference announcing her decision. She said, quote, Mr. Fogg could help bolster diversity of the office because the commitment to diversity in any organization must begin at the top. Lamar then tried to justify bringing in somebody from outside the office as opposed to promoting somebody from within by 
trying to say that the public defender's office is, is mismanaged and that she's heard complaints of assistant public defenders not staying in touch with clients and that the office has been politicized in recent years. Lamar's implicit argument is that installing a black public defender is going to be sufficient to answering calls for a better public defender's office. Now, here are the problems with Lamar's representation first, politics. First, she's pitting one marginalized group against another, creating a pandejo game. Now, a pandejo game is a zero-sum game which pits marginalized groups against each other. Like, in this case, Sianca versus Fog is narrowed down to white versus black. But the pandejo game of white versus black ignores the intersection of black male and white female. Dr. Ian Haney Lopez, a law professor at Berkeley, she showed in his book Merge Left that pitting marginalized groups against each other is bad for coalition building. So like if a less qualified minority is chosen over a more qualified minority because they serve a niche need for representation, that hurts coalition building. Choosing the less qualified black person over the more qualified white woman when really we all should be fighting against white male patriarchy. The fact that Fogg even gets recommended for the job with absolutely zero public defender experience against multiple female public defenders with three decades of of public defender experience is male privilege. Fogg sits at the intersection of black and male. Sianca is at the intersection of white and female, and history shows that black men reach positions of power before females of any race. Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, need I say more? I mean, this is also true, actually, even with the Monroe County Public Defender's Office. Fogg, if he was appointed, he would be the second black man to hold that position. And Sianca, if she was appointed, would be the first female public defender. So if diversity at the top is truly Lamar's aim. I mean, then she's in a great position because diversity is going to be increased no matter who's selected. And as we said at the beginning, representation is important. But representation shouldn't be at the expense of the underserved population who rely on a well-functioning public defender's office. The question should be, who's going to be the best person to fight for the institutional reforms and get them effectively implemented? Lamar's assuming that a black person is going to be the best person to address systemic racism, but that isn't necessarily so. All right, I'm going to give you a little bit of insider knowledge, okay, from my time at the Monroe County Public Defender's Office. I worked there for seven years. When I joined the Public Defender's Office in 2003, there was a different public defender there running it. He'd been running it for a very long time, over 20 years, close to retirement. As an attorney, he is responsible for two landmark New York Court of Appeals cases that gave defendants more rights. Absolutely incredible contribution to the defense of civil rights. But under his tenure as public defender, caseloads of assistant public defenders ballooned to absolutely unmanageable levels. They were levels that were unheard of in even New York City. My first few years as a assistant public defender was the most stressful time in my life. Uh, I was handling misdemeanors in town and city court. And when I was in city court, they had this, you would go on an eight-month rotation where you would get in, you would start at part one, and you would get all of it, the cases that came in in that particular month. And then you would take the next seven months to try to take them all to trial. 
Now, that was not a reasonable amount of time. There was always holdovers from the months before. So you would, when you transferred your cases, you would inherit a bunch of cases left over from, from previous rotations, and then you would get all the new cases. In one particularly terrible rotation, I had about 1,500 separate files at all different stages. And when we got to the trial phase, I had 17 jury trials set for Tuesday and 17, a different, totally different, 17 set for Thursday. That's 17 different defendants on Tuesday and 17 different defendants on Thursday. And this happened week after week. Any one of those trials could actually start. I had absolutely no idea which one. All of them had to be prepped. Subpoenas had to be sent out for witnesses. You had to speak to them in advance. You had to have some idea of what your arguments were going to be. It was impossible to to do a great job. I worked as hard as I could. I did not take a single day off for six months straight. Obviously, we were extremely understaffed. And I was a part of a group of attorneys who met with a previous public defender, the one before Tim. We need to hire more attorneys so that our caseloads can go down so that we're not risking committing malpractice. But he did not want to hear it. He just wanted to tell us, you know, oh, yeah, you're doing a great job. And it's, it is, you know, it just made excuses. I actually got up and left the meeting. I just, I didn't, I didn't like tell him off. I just got up and left. This guy also secretly discriminated against female public defenders. Sometimes he hired less qualified men and he paid them higher salaries than more qualified women. This scandal came out when Tim was public defender. So he so this was exposed and he went to the legislature and got them to approve the salary increases so that our the women attorneys were brought up to parity with their male counterparts, but of course there was no back pay for all the time that we were being underpaid. But, you know, that's I don't really blame Tim for that. I blame the legislature for that. And I only worked with him for 2 years, but you know, in the two years that I were there and also in the continuing 12 years going forward, he really transformed that office. By 2015, it was the first large county outside of New York to ensure that all indigent defendants had lawyers at their first court appearance. The New York State Bar Association recognized his work in 2017, honored him for promoting standards for mandated representation. An article in 2021 by Will Cleveland, a journalist at the Democratic Chronicle, said that under Donaher's watch, the office had grown from 83 positions, both support staff and attorneys, to 141. That was due in large part to increased state funding. Tim said he's proud of the diversity, equity, and inclusion work that was underway in the office. Another great thing Tim did was to bring back special assistant public defender Danielle Ponder, who's a black female, and her job was to be the diversity and and inclusion officer to expand the diversity of the office staff and to help build an inclusive organization with the goal of improving the representation of clients. Now, Jill Paperno, the former first assistant, and Julie Sianca are longtime supervisors in the PD's office. They have been part of this continual effort to build a better public defender's office to get more resources to serve the clients better. Robert Fogg hasn't spent the last 30 years doing this type of work, and it's a real gamble to think that he's going to be the best person to continue it. Okay, here's the PD appointment update. So Lamar 
put Fogg up for a vote in front of the full legislature, but he didn't get enough votes. She actually voted against him so that he can be resubmitted later. He gets two bites at the apple. He gets two votes. And between now and then, she's going to have to try to flip some votes. But I don't know. It's not looking good. There's a group of Democrats who submitted a letter trying to get Julie Sianka in front of the full legislature by submitting her to a committee. And if you look at the number of Democrats that signed that letter, they add up to more votes than Fogg received when he was voted on by the full legislature. So it's pretty clear that she has more support. Long story short, though, their tactic didn't work. The committee didn't send her through, and the whole process may have tanked her chances because there's a rule that says that once submitted, if you don't go through, you can't be resubmitted until 2024. But if the Democrats continue to reject Fogg, then it's completely unclear what happens next. Does the process start all over again? Nobody knows at this point. Luckily, the office is being capably led by First Assistant Public Defender Eric Teifke. So no worries there. The rank and file PDs have filed an intent to form a union because they fear retaliation for speaking out, criticizing the selection process. Now, they spoke out anonymously, but still they're worried, and I think understandably so. So I think it's a really good and smart move for them to unionize and be able to have more power as workers in negotiating for what they need and to fight uh, for proper treatment. In the end, if symbolic representation becomes the focus of black or minority political aspiration, then you can end up with a dangerous bait and switch like Clarence Thomas, where the public can get this false sense of security, assuming that, you know, for example, a black appointee is going to automatically have a sense of duty or loyalty to all black people. But for real change to come to the poor and working class, it's going to require a focus on achieving policies that redistribute public resources to change poor and working class people's material conditions. Right? So they're going to have to advocate for money to not go to the rich and powerful, but instead to go to more regular people. They're going to need to do this by pushing for more money with state and local governments to hire enough public defenders, for example, so that they could have small enough caseloads to be able to do a good job for their clients. But when you have a system that's intoxicated with the politics of symbolism, of symbolic appointments, you can end up with a person who is beholden to the system that gave them power. And then they're less willing to demand any kind of truly redistributive materialistic agenda for the working class and poor people. So maybe it's a better idea to look and see who are the people who are actually doing the work to help get more resources and make things better for the people and pick them to lead. Next episode of May It Displease the Court, it's going to break the rules, and we are going to talk about law clerks with Georgia State Professor of Law, Eric Segal. You can always find the podcast on Twitter, at CourtPod, or drop an email at court at gmail.com. 
We would love you to rate and review the show because it helps others find the program. Thank you. Ta-da. Done.